Welcome in, everybody. Hello, hello. Uh, my name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. We are here with episode four of Everything Sucks, Let's Fix It. What a fantastic name. <laughs> I'm, I'm stunned positively <laughs> every time I hear it. Today is June 4th, 2023. We're going to talk some politics. Do you want to recap the format again? Yeah, for sure. So first things first, we're going to start off with some current events. That'll normally take... No, I don't like that. Don't lay it out. I don't like that at all. You don't want to introduce? No, I'd like to introduce it, but I don't like what I just said. We got to start over. No, Sorry. we don't. No, we do. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this out. You have to. No. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you have so much power over me. <laughs> so, the format. <laughs> oh, no. It's going to be current events, then we do a book club, we read some of a book and we're going to discuss it, and then we're going to go deep dive. Today, we are deep diving into the US and China. We have been teasing this for a while. I am so excited. I am also very I excited. I have been personally getting into this topic so much. I feel like this is what got you interested in politics. It honestly recently. is. This is what re-inspired your interest. Yeah, well, I would say... I would say it was actually Ukraine and Russia first. Oh, sure. Because that's really when like the geopolitical pieces on the board started moving much faster yeah. than they had been before. Um, but China is a huge part of that. So yeah, for sure. I'm okay. excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. Okay. And we read a really good paper about it, too. Yes, yes. Um, from a very interesting person. Yes. I don't know if you looked into her. I did. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, but current events, debt let ceiling. It, let us begin with... The conclusion of an epic saga. Yes. Um, the debt ceiling is finally over. We have the agreement is reached. It's voted on. Biden has signed it. It's done. Default has been avoided. Um, it's been a wild ride. Yeah. This is our third week talking about it, which just goes to show. Right. Yeah. This has been capturing, you know, our American current events for the past month. Before we even get into the the nitty-gritty of the deal yeah. and the politics of it. I, I read this profile, this article in the Washington Post that went like behind the scenes, Ooh. behind the curtain of the deal making. That's the best. So interesting. Like how Biden and McCarthy have never had a working relationship before. Mm -hmm. McCarthy had these like two other representatives on his side and Biden had these mediators working for him. And there were two people who happened to go and like live in the same place in louisiana no way on both sides that was able to like to uh create connections between them see that's interesting that a personal relationship was able to mediate some political disagreement like that yeah right because it just the personal relationships do matter at every level absolutely yeah yeah these inst it's always important to remember there are people inside these institutions that yeah. at the end of the day they're making a lot of the deals and how they're able to get along actually matters yeah. and how you know our government functions absolutely and that makes me think too like we've been talking a lot about the kevin mccarthy having his job as speaker on the line and that's right. something where you think like it's a very human worry to mm -hmm. have like to to have this job and to not want to get demoted basically yeah. well i mean like now let's go into it right mccarthy has been wanting to be the speaker for 10 years since mm -hmm. 2010 that's what th this is what he's wanted and he's allied with specific people to get into this position mm -hmm. and now that he's here he doesn't want to blow it because in 2011 during the debt fight then speaker boehner of the republican house blew it and lost the trust of the republican base and they kicked him out in 2015 mm -hmm. and mccarthy doesn't want that same record mccarthy was the guy fighting against boehner back in the day 
Okay. So now McCarthy is seeing this and he's like, I don't want to repeat that fate, mm-hmm. you know? So it passed in the House of Representatives first. McCarthy yes. promised Hakeem Jeffries, who is the Democratic leader of the House, that he would be able to carry along 150 Republicans to vote for the bill. Mm-hmm. He only got 149. That's so funny. It's so funny, right? Yeah. It's to hilarious. To be one off. But, to be, it, but like what that says about his leadership ability, he doesn't have the ability to whip his caucus the way that Nancy Pelosi had over the Democratic caucus. The mm-hmm. Democrats are pretty divided between the progressives and the moderates and the blue dogs. But when it came down to a vote, Nancy Pelosi had it together. True. McCarthy doesn't have that ability. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Like, is it, is it because to me, it's the idea is that the base of the the hard right Republicans are far enough removed from reality that it doesn't actually matter mm. if the results of their actions and their legislation hurts their base yeah. they trust that much that the base is going to stay with them i think that's i think that's accurate i don't think that they're really in it for the i think the hard right base isn't in it for the outcomes mm. they're in it for the win yeah. you know what i mean they're in it for the win exactly and we talked about this last time the republican base in the freedom caucus the freedom caucus is the hardcore right of yep. the house of representatives they wanted a 22% cut to every federal department minus the veterans stuff and the and the military mm-hmm. in the disc- discretionary part portion of our budget. They got a 1% increase. So they're in a massive upheaval right now. And the, the, the Freedom Caucus, guys like Andy Biggs, who Andy Biggs was trying to get McCarthy's job a little, a little, a little over six months ago. Andy Biggs is lobbying to put up a motion to vacate and kick McCarthy out. You have guys um, like Matt Gates, who of course is trying to push McCarthy out. Yeah. So McCarthy's in a really difficult spot. And what McCarthy promised them was the majority of senators in the Senate, the majority of Republican senators will vote for this bill. But when it came to the Senate, they didn't win the majority of Republican senators. This passed with more Democrat senators than Republican senators. Only four Democrat senators voted against it. Every other Democratic senator voted for it. So, and the reasons Republicans didn't vote for it are all over the place. Some people think it didn't cut enough. Other people think it didn't spend enough. On military. On military. Like Lindsey Graham. There we go. Lindsey Graham gave a speech alongside Susan Collins. Susan Collins is from Maine. Lindsey Graham is from South Carolina. Lindsey Graham is a very prominent Republican. He ran for president um, a little while ago. I think 2012. 2016. 2016? Okay. And... He was saying that there wasn't enough money for the military budget, mm-hmm. talking about the Navy statistics. Susan Collins was going off about how many ships we were going to have. Versus China. Versus China. Yes. Seems to be a theme. Yeah. Weird. And, weird. And, you know, that's – it's interesting how that was the dichotomy because the House of Representatives was not really pushing for an increase in the military budget. And the, on the right, people like to call this thing called – talk about this thing called the uniparty. You hear that phrase a lot and right-wing circles, the uniparty. It's the Democrats and the Republicans working together to screw over the people, the uniparty. And when those speeches were coming out, the Republican response was, oh, this is Lindsey Graham being a part of the uniparty. And the uniparty's deal was, we'll increase domestic spending if you increase military spending. So that's how Democrats and Republicans have historically worked together. Mitch McConnell will go to Joe Biden and say, okay, I'll raise domestic spending if you raise military spending. And they would work in tandem. 
Mm. And the Freedom Caucus was like, what if we cut both? And then kind of breaks down that uniparty thing, that uniparty compromise. Mm. So Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, not happy. And it's been, it's crazy. Yeah. It really was a, a political drama fest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, I mean, the one other thing we have here is the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And that's a really, yeah, we issue. definitely got to talk yeah. about Yeah, well, that. I guess because we talk about the Republican side, but there's also a liberal side of this. Right. Um, and my view of this was always that, uh, and I think the accurate analysis would be that Biden, um, Schumer would be able to whip the party enough to get the votes to pass the bill. Um, and I think that's definitely what it seemed like when this initially got to the Senate. So when it first went into the Senate, Schumer made a speech about how they were not going to end the session until the bill was passed. Um, he had They had 11 amendments proposed. And Schumer wanted no amendments. Schumer made it a point. He's like, do not propose any amendments. We need to pass this now. Yeah. But – People didn't listen. They yeah. did propose amendments. Well, because people wanted to air their grievances and they can make videos use... to post on Twitter. Exactly. They know? can use their speeches and and potentially their votes against the bill for political currency. Yeah, true. Basically. So you have like Bernie Sanders did not vote for the bill because of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which I should say now is this gas pipeline going from West Virginia into Virginia um that senator joe manchin from west virginia has been pushing for for years it was yeah. it's been working through an approvals process since 2017 that's and unbelievable courts have continued to strike it down because the developers aren't doing it the right way wow. aren't treating the environment correctly and so what we had now was this unprecedented language in this bill that specifically green lights this mountain valley pipeline um and loops it kind of kind of takes an end around the courts mm. like it takes out their knees and it says that it calls the mountain valley pipeline something about being integral to american security and so that it should go through without any resistance wow and something that i read afterwards is that this is paying back joe manchin for his vote Yes, on the Inflation Reduction Act. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Which does make a lot of sense because Manchin, we, we know, he was the lone holdout vote that was waiting to get that passed. And it yeah. was a huge deal when it was announced that he was going to vote yes. Yeah. Um, so one of the amendments, there were 11 proposed. One of them was from Senator Tim Kaine out of Indiana. Virginia. Out of Virginia. That's why it was affecting his state. Yes, that makes sense. Um to remove the language about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, uh, that didn't pass because, again, this is part of Schumer whipping the the Democrats is that if any of these amendments pass, yep. the bill has to go back to the House, yep. get passed there, and by then it would have been too late. Right. Like we would have defaulted. We would have defaulted. Exactly. Um, but interesting, Lindsey Graham, I, I want to say something else about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, but Lindsey Graham was actually okay with extending a clean debt ceiling increase for 90 more days to try to get a better deal. Um, that wasn't going to happen, though. After all this negotiation, no one was done. Everyone was away from the table. We're voting now. Yeah. But with the Mountain Valley Pipeline thing, Tim Kaine coming out and proposing that amendment, I thought was really courageous. And courageous and Tim Kaine, 
was not something I would ever thought I would say in the same sentence. But I have to say, the fact, this is a pretty establishment guy. He went against the party leadership, opposed this amendment, and I'm pretty happy about that. And I'm also pretty happy to see that 30 Democrats voted to get this out mm. of the legislation. Still obviously failed 69 to 30, but it was 30 who voted to kick it out. Why do you think it's courageous? Well, because when the leader of your party tells you not to do something and you do it anyway, mm. you're threatening losing a committee assignment. You're threatening okay. losing establishment funding for your next election. You know what I mean? Mm. It takes a lot to say, like, I know you want me to do this, but I'm doing something else and I don't care what you're going to do to me. I suppose. I wonder, I would assume there was a meeting behind closed doors, probably yeah. between Kane and Schumer that was like, hey, look, like I need to be able to tell it's my possible. constituency that I voted against this, that right. I not only voted against this, that I tried specifically, I wrote an amendment yeah. to get it out of the law. I and mean, if I was Tim Kaine, I would do that exactly. Totally. I would go to Schumer and I would say, look, this is what I'm going to do. I hope this doesn't get you too mad. Yeah. But this is what I'm going to do. And I hope you can respect that. And that's how I see the votes of the dissenting Democrats as well. It's just yeah. like, we know it's going to pass. We need to be able to say that we didn't support these parts of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's all for show. All for like, show. The Democrats knew they couldn't default. No, of course. Yeah. And what I, I just think it's so interesting that after all of this, Biden walks away as the winner. Biden walks away saying, we got this deal done. The Democrats were united and the Republicans weren't. I think mm -hmm. Biden can walk away from this. I don't think it's a victory because I'm not a fan of the deal. Right. I don't like what it does to food stamps. I don't like what it does to the IRS. Mm -hmm. I don't like what it does with the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I don't like those things. I don't like how it doesn't raise taxes to address the deficit. But Biden is able to walk away from this and say, I devoided economic catastrophe despite Republican opposition. You know what I mean? I, I, I think he's able to walk away from this and be viewed as... I just see it neutral. You see it totally neutral. I, I see it like like... McCarthy didn't default and he got some of what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Biden didn't default and he got some of what he wanted. Well, I see McCarthy walking away with a strong approval too. But I don't see Republicans walking away with a strong approval. Mm -hmm. I see McCarthy walking away as like, oh, one of the reasonable ones. Okay. And then I see the rest of this, the Republicans who didn't line up for it as being like, they're too, they're untrustworthy. Trusting oh. this, this party with the government. Okay. isn't worth it because there's too many extremists in there okay but i think mccarthy looks pretty good after this so the republican party as a whole loses because of the dissent yes that this is that's shown. what i think that's my analysis that makes sense yeah that's my analysis cool but now we're talking about environmental stuff there's another thing going on over in colorado right yes so in the american southwest there's been this thing that has gotten some news attention but not a ton and i've just been weirdly into geography at varying points in the past few months so this caught my attention um if anyone has been to the american southwest in the past several like decade you know that it's in a severe drought really bad drought um and it's gotten bad enough where the colorado river has been at risk of of actually stopping its flows the colorado river runs through colorado all the way down past the mexican border and the basin for the colorado river supplies water for 40 million plus people including the metros of denver los angeles san diego um phoenix las vegas mm -hmm. all of the big cities down there it also supports a ton of american agriculture including about 80 percent of the farming that is done to supply the country in the winter 
So this is a big deal. Like not having water in these places can be catastrophic, not just for the region, but for the whole country as well, far as food supply. Do we know how we messed up the projection so bad with how much water we were going to have? Yeah. So the the history here is the there are seven states in the Colorado River Agreement. And this agreement was made in the 1920s. I don't know the exact year. Um, but these are the states that draw water from the basin. And they're California. I hope I can remember all of them. It's California, Nevada, Arizona, um, Colorado, New Mexico, um, maybe Utah? Utah, maybe Utah. I think it's Utah. Um, and then I cannot remember the sixth one. Um, but the the main players, the important characters here. Oh, wait. Well, first of all, how? Why are we in in drought? So okay. there are two reasons. One is there's been overallocation of the water because in the twenties, when the agreement was first made. It was made on the basis of data that was taken in about the past 10 to 20 years, which was an unusually wet period. Of course it was. Yes. But the, the weird thing is, and I looked into this deeply enough to know, that scientists knew that at the time. Whoa. And all of the stakeholders in the states just wanted to be able to take more water. Oh, that's a nightmare. It, it's, But it's classic America, that's right? Classic. It's, it's like, don't care about the long-term consequences so that we can have more in the short term. That's classic. Um. So that's been contributing to the misallocation. Past that, the other obvious reason is climate change. Of course. I mean, we would have naturally been in a drought for about the past 20 years is what geologists are saying, mm -hmm. but it's been made about 40% worse because of climate change. Wow. Is the estimations. Science and geology is amazing that we're able to actually understand what percentage of this is due to yeah. climate change and the abnormalities of the weather because of that, right? It is so That's cool. incredible. Yeah. But so is there a plan that they're doing to try to fix this? Yeah. So the po the politics of this now is California is the lowest basin state. And so there's something, interestingly enough, if you get into geology, you realize how much the government has to be a part of these land and water use rights. Yeah, and sure. So there's something called the law of the river, which generally gives the most rights the most amount of water access to states that are at the lowest end of the river basin so the colorado river runs north south which means california is the state with the right to the most water um so in negotiations it thus has the most bargaining power and mm. it it doesn't really have to agree to cede any of its water use wow so what had happened is the states actually, like, I think last August had been told that they need to come up with a plan to reduce water usage because the river was going to be in a drought. Uh, but they hit the deadline, passed it, no plan that has come to. Classic again, America. Classic America. <laughs> and so it doesn't come up in the news again until there's another report that's like in these two lakes, and one I think is at the Hoover Dam. Um the, there's something called like a dead pool level of the lakes where that if the water is not a certain amount high, uh, they won't flow through. So it won't flow through the dams oh, and the river flows will stop. And when that happens, no more water for all this agriculture, no more, no more water for the people of Phoenix, Los Angeles, and all these other cities. And so it comes back and the states are like, okay, now we actually have to get to the table and start doing some work here. And so, again, they go back, and at first, six of the seven states 
are in agreement on a plan for all of them to reduce water use. Okay. But California oh my God, is still no. holding out. Why? And because they, they can. Because they want their golf courses. They and want they want their almond production. I think it should be legal to plant almonds. You know how much water is used yeah. in the plant in the farming of almonds? Get them out. <laughs> it's and it's not just because I'm allergic, okay? They <laughs> <laughs> and they're mostly exported. Like they they're not actually necessary for I don't even how do you know that? That is awesome. <laughs> you just know you you know our trade deficit in relation to our almond export. <laughs> That, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but so the reason we're bringing this up now, all this stuff had been happening for months and months and months. And about a week and a half ago, the states finally did agree. Oh, thank God. And I hate to say that I don't know a ton of specifics besides the agreement is going to reduce water use by about 3 million acre feet over the next three years. I have no understanding of what three million acre feet of water looks like. I know. I know. It's, I imagine it's just like an acre. It's like a foot of water on an acre. It is okay. that volume. Okay. So three million acres. I mean, that sounds like a lot of water. Is a lot. Okay. It should, it should be helpful. Okay. Um, but I'm, it is an interesting story. And that's going to be super politically not, that's going to be a political nightmare for a lot of the governors or everything when like they start having to make laws to limit water usage yeah i mean i'm sure most water usage comes in through industry or agriculture that's the thing most of it is overused by big agro businesses there you go that's what i thought so anyway. if yeah. they but but again it we're, we're talking about america so are they really gonna take it out of yeah, how are you gonna crack those down? places or are they gonna come down on the residential areas but residential exactly. areas don't use that much water i mean i was looking at some True. projections that are like six percent of water usage comes from residential areas and so much is coming from agriculture it's not even comparable really yeah you know so i don't know how much water they could claw out of that but i'm really glad that they came to a deal and were able to work together there because that's really scary yeah it, <laughs> we talked about the water war happening between yeah. iran and afghanistan last week and it's right within our borders yeah now, so. okay so talk about deal making we have a super <laughs> inter do you like my transition you are on your transition i'm on fire right today now. yeah so a very interesting alliance has been taped together um, in the Senate right now between Elizabeth Warren and J.D. Vance. Now, J.D. Vance is a very conservative, America first Republican, very America first. He's the guy who wrote you, Billy, uh, Hillbilly Eulogy. It's this guy from Ohio. I don't, it was a very popular book. Um, and he is interesting because he really bucks with the Republican Party. He is really economically populist mm. and a lot of the pro-business republicans don't really like him like you know in 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 the washington post editorial pages in 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 the in the wall street journal's editorial pages they're not a big fan of jd vance but right now jd vance and elizabeth warren from massachusetts are working together to try to punish uh, the CEOs and executives of failed banks. Now, this is in response to the Silicon Valley bank failure um, a couple months ago. And what Vance and Warren are working together to try to propose is it would require the FDIC to claw back the, 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 the compensations from executives of large banks that, over, that have over $10 billion in reserves of the last three years worth of compensation. So executives would have a very strong incentive to not have their bank fail because they are going to be personally held accountable for their institution's failure. Mm -hmm. I think this is a really awesome piece of legislation. Yeah. I think it's like, I don't know how, like, I don't know how, it doesn't like obviously raise a lot of money for the FDIC. It's not going to be a big source of revenue for the government, but it is 
a, a, a better regulation of holding individuals accountable, you know, when yeah. they do so much damage to so many. Having laws that directly affect these individuals in very high positions of power, I think, is a really good step. Yeah. And to see it coming from Republican and Democrat unity here, I think, is really cool. I agree. It's it's interesting because I was going to make the comparison to the book we just read, which talked so much about the woes of financialization and yes. what it's done to the American people. Um, but I wonder – I think this will partly do that, but it's still – Banks can still very freely exploit people. This is only hopefully protecting against banks going under themselves, yeah. which also will, which does, of course, hurt people as it does, as that happens. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it, it should be. But again, something. it's not, it, it, the legislation is interesting to me, not because of how effective it is or how like really special it is but the fact that you have a republican senator with jd vance and even republican senator josh hawley from yeah. missouri who are again very conservative people but they're economically populist in a way that progressives are able to work with them mm -hmm. and if this is the type of bipartisanship that we can expect in the future i'm really excited i agree because if this could be like we, we talked a little bit before about the uniparty if we could have a new uniparty consensus around punishing wall street mm -hmm. I'll sign up for that. Totally. That's the type of bipartisanship I want to see. And, you know, it's upsetting to see Republicans honestly shit on J.D. Vance for negotiating with Elizabeth Warren. Have they been? Yeah. And that it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's because J.D. Vance is valuing cultural issues over economic issues. That's where his politics are, you know? He, sure. In a lot of ways, he's more liberal in his economics and in, okay. in some instances not in regards to immigration you know but sure. when we talk about bank regulation yeah he will be have you seen any democrats shitting on elizabeth warren no okay and that's a good sign well that's why i wonder is this a biden effect Ooh. like in being the the everyman almost biden inspires the even the very hard left liberals yeah to negotiate with the people on the right and to be okay with finding compromise there. Yeah. Because that would be wonderful. And I think it's been so long since we've seen something like that. Mm. And I think like, I, I just think it's a really good sign that Elizabeth Warren and J.D. Vance were literally calling each other on their cell phones, trying to talk it out, hash it out, long yeah. conversations, trying to be on the same team. And it makes me feel like this is something that could actually happen yeah. because they're committed to this. And I don't know how much, I don't know if it could pass in a Republican house. But in 2024, if the Democrats take the House back, I can absolutely see something like this passing in the Senate going to the House and this actually being a bipartisan success. Yeah. And it would be nice to see Washington respond to something that was so scary for the American people, which is a massive bank collapsing. Yeah. I would love to see Washington be able to respond. Well, this is the type of legislation that should have been enacted after the financial crisis of 2008. Exactly. Exactly. That's such a great point. We should have brought out the stick back then. Yeah. We always talk about carrot and the stick politics. Mm -hmm. This is a stick politics. Yeah. This is if you do something wrong, we're going to beat you, you know? Yeah. And we didn't get that in 2008. But if we can get it now, you know, we it can could, help us moving forward. It could help us move forward. And I, I'd love to see that. That is exciting. We All can right. hope. Now, last thing about economics here. We have the May jobs report. Um, I went on a little bit of a deep dive here. And I did a lot, a lot of, of data analysis on 
on this uh, on this jobs report. And it, it has some really interesting stuff in it, and especially what we're going to talk about in a little bit, I think. Um, first things first, we added th- about 350,000 jobs in the month of May. This defied expectations. People thought we were about to be entering recession territory, people, th- especially with like the default coming up. So we were in like a doom and gloom era of of our uh, of American economics, okay? Mm-hmm. And this jobs report blew everyone out of the water. People, you know, people online were responding like, did they fake the numbers? Is this fake? Like, how could this be real? Mm-hmm. And th- we saw an interesting dynamic where we added 350,000 jobs, but our unemployment rate still went up. So what that means is there's a little bit of a discrepancy with the data. Something's probably going to get adjusted. Either the employment rate was too high and it's going to get corrected down, mm. or the jobs or numbers being reported were a little too high and they're going to get pulled down. I was wondering about that. Well, I was wondering if there are other explanations to this. I figured like like it's not like there's been a massive immigration, but could it be something about college graduations or high school graduations having happened in the month but they're seasonally adjusted Uh, they're seasonally adjusted so seasonally adjusted means it's comparing every may to the past may so it's not yeah so that three hundred fifty thousand number is it's already adjusted for all those externalities i see yes okay yes it's already adjusted for all that you know but i was thinking the same thing at first yeah now the stock market reacted great the dow jones jumped like 700 points the morning this thing was announced everyone was stoked um, and when we break down where these jobs were created, we saw the most amount of jobs coming from education and healthcare, which is not surprising. Healthcare and education and tech like that, business services is the next most prominent. Tech services, another massive aspect of our economy. Government jobs were still growing. Now, what I found interesting about this was the most amount of government, jo- government jobs that were getting created were coming from local governments. Now, mm-hmm. This is a result of American Rescue Plan funding that was passed two years ago still being used. And I know this from a firsthand perspective, because if anyone doesn't know, I'm an elected official in the town of Brookline, and we just passed... Massachusetts. Yeah, Brookline, Massachusetts. Yeah. And we, we just passed our yearly budget, and we're using American Rescue Plan funding to fix a lot of the roads in our community. Okay. So that local government job boost is still because of American Rescue Plan stuff. Interesting. The bad news, because there is a little bit manufacturing jobs went down now biden's big push in this country has been to bring back manufacturing just like every american president over the last 20 years right Mm -hmm. that's what every american president says um but unfortunately they declined slightly this month only by two thousand jobs but it is a decline and that's not the trend you want to see Mm -hmm. a specific aspect of manufacturing jobs that i want to zoom in on are semiconductor jobs we saw a decrease of 2,000 semiconductor-related jobs. Now, semiconductors are one of the most important aspects of our economy. They are vital to our economic growth and vital, vital to our international competition, especially with China. And after the passing of the CHIPS Act, a lot of that money isn't in use yet. So this number will go up. But this was one of the first decreases in a long time of continued growth. Yeah, I was confused about that um, because... Because of the Chips Act, right. and I, I, it makes sense that that money isn't like that money is being used to build the factories that are going to employ the people right now. But I, it was hard. I, I don't see an explanation for why the decrease, except what is just now coming to my mind. Have you heard about the recent Nvidia 
um, earnings call. No. Okay. So NVIDIA announced a ton of AI integration into their production no system. way yeah and its stock jumped enormously really? i was just i was just perusing wall street bets a week ago or something and there were people who had made like three thousand percent on their nvidia stock wow uh so i don't know if this could be a trend across the industry mm. that people are losing their jobs because ai is taking them over that's really interesting it's that's a nightmare yeah yeah. Man, um, see, see, semiconductors is an industry that I want to see grow. And totally. I would hate to see an industry that I want to see grow be completely captured by AI. Yeah. And then that national pie that we always talk about on the show isn't getting distributed correctly. Yeah. That stinks. Yeah. Hopefully the CHIPS Act can save a lot of that. Hopefully. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe more people to program the AI, but that's just, that's going to be a theme in this economy for a long time. Totally. Well, and, we're going to have to do an AI deep dive. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But now what, what, what I, I want to bring this back to Stiglitz mm. because what this jobs report showed was the continued transition to the service economy. Yes. This jobs report showed that we saw the most amount of job growth in education, in healthcare, in food service, decline in manufacturing. So we're transitioning into this service economy mm -hmm. that we have been for over a decade. And now we're building back out of the COVID era and that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, legislators have to make a lot of hard decisions if they're going to and really put the pedal to the metal with some policy legislation, if they're going to want to get that manufacturing back and try to integrate more of that into our economy and not just have it be a service economy. Yes, which yeah. I think is what they're trying to do with right. chips, which is what they're trying to do with chips. And oh. I do agree. I think I think having a menu, I, I think totally selling off our manufacturing base is a terrible idea. I know that some people think it would be a good idea to lean into the service sector and totally just lean into the service economy. But for national security reasons, mm. it's not a good move. Yeah. You yeah. Know? We need, I mean, now this is something that we haven't really talked about, but there, there's at least one very smart person who I pay attention to who is been kind of yelling that we are heading towards deglobalization mm -hmm. and we're heading towards it rapidly yeah and he's been saying that for a very long time um and the ukraine war has only accelerated it further definitely and, which means that being able to build things in-house is more important is getting more important than it really ever has been in the past at least 30 40 years absolutely yeah yeah the one other thing that i caught on this jobs report was the construction um, jobs being added and mm -hmm. so there were 25,000 construction jobs added on this 2400 specifically in residential construction That's which great. I just mentioned because in our first episode we did a deep dive on housing and specifically on zoning reforms but one thing that we mentioned that I'll mention again is that we have a pretty big housing shortage in this country. Uh, and that's something that is felt very acutely in our own Boston metro area. Yes. So I was excited to see that. And one other thing that I checked into there is we are right now, there are more residences under construction than there ever have been since like 1980. That is I think. amazing. Yeah. That is amazing to see. It is exciting. So hopefully we'll see more growth in yes. the sector. And I think, I think the infrastructure plan has a lot to do with the increase in construction jobs. The infrastructure bill passed last year. What part of it? Um, the... Uh, when we're talking about rebuilding bridges 
mm. refurnishing airports, redoing all these things, re, re, re-upping ports, right? These are massive construction projects that are going to employ a lot of people. And okay. I think that we're seeing that starting to reflect in the jobs numbers. Do you think that, okay, are you saying like that goes to the construction numbers or that it does that also, do you think it connects to the residential? No, I don't think it connects to the residential. Okay. No, I don't think it connects to the residential. It, it, yeah, yeah. It only connects to the construction stuff. I don't know what could explain the residential, to be honest. I'm, maybe, I think. Maybe just demand. The housing shortage noise is getting louder. Maybe. I think so. Because well, we've talked about, again, on the first episode for all the, uh, the OGs out there who's watched that, it's like. A lot of communities are now changing their zoning to encourage more development for the mm-hmm. first time in a while. Yes. So hopefully that's trickling down and we see that in the jobs numbers on the higher level there. Yeah. All right. Let's transition to some global affairs. Yes. Here. Okay. This was really interesting to me. So I looked into, I went pretty deep on this. There has been some unrest in Kosovo, which is this country. It's pronounced Kosovo. Kosovo. Well, I was just going to say, I didn't know it existed <laughs> until I saw this news. It's this little Balkan country that is right between Serbia and Albania. And so what the unrest is coming mostly in this northern region, which borders Serbia. And I would highly recommend anyone who's watching this to bring up a map because I feel like it'll be super helpful. Yeah. But there's a northern region that is majority Serbian, still in Kosovo. Um, and they are loyal to the Serbian government. And they so, have been for a long time. Yes, yes. So there's a lot of history here. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which both of these countries were a part of, Kosovo and Ser- Serbia wanted to keep Kosovo as part of its own country, as part of Serbia. But Kosovo wanted to be its own country. So there was a war and Kosovo didn't break off but then years later in 2008 they signed an agreement to govern or no they in 2008 they unilaterally unilaterally declared independence Mm -hmm. serbia still didn't recognize it russia china didn't recognize it um slowly more countries have recognized it with the western countries always have yeah Um, the western bloc has always been pro kosovo yes there was a big deal in the 90s with the bombing of a lot of serbian areas because the NATO allies were defending Kosovo from Serbian incursions. Interesting. And this was leading to a lot of genocide back then. A lot of genocide in this area between the Serbs and the and the Albanians in Kosovo. I didn't know that at and all. And the NATO stepped in to try to stop that genocide. And now it was it was after the fall of Yugoslavia. So, yeah. yes, and in that breakup there was just so much ethnic hatred. And the the the, the Serbs in Kosovo were aligning with the Serbian government and and then there were fights with Croatia and it was a whole mess throughout the 90s. So this is only really getting settled now and you can't even call it settled no. because of what happened recently. Yeah, it's not getting settled. Um because so in 2013 it was it seemed like it was getting settled because in 2013 they signed an agreement where Serbia even though it didn't officially recognize Kosovo as an independent country yeah it gave it the right to rule but Mm. in that agreement serbia negotiated for the majority of serbian regions in kosovo to form an association of serbian municipalities Mm. which would have special governing rights right over the association 
That's so difficult Even when, you try, to have, when you try to have these governments that have local, tinier governments that are honestly almost loyal to another country. Literally hostile to the national government. Right. Yeah. Um, and so because of how problematic that would be, the association wasn't formed because they couldn't agree between the national government and the Serbian regions what the extent of the powers of the municipal association would be. Right. Fast forward to 2023 now. No, to 2022, late 2022. That that agreement still hasn't happened. That association still has not been formed. Oh, my God. And there are Serbian leaders. So, so both in Serbia and within Kosovo, who um, who are trying to get this associ- association formed. And to do so, Serbian mayors in the, in the Kosovo areas that are majority Serb resign in protest mm-hmm. of not having this association. Business goes on as usual, and because all these mayors resigned, the next step is to elect new mayors. And... In the upcoming elections, which were going to happen at the time that is now about two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. the Serbians in these Serbian majority areas are all in agreement to boycott the elections. Oh, God. So turnout ends up being horrifically low. We're talking four, three percent turnout. Oh, my God. And there are some, and these Albanian mayors, because so. I, I don't think I've said this yet. Kosovo is like 6% Serbian, 92% Albanian. But the Serbian majority regions are very Serbian. Mm-hmm. So when Albanian mayors get elected in these Serbian majority regions because... They have, they have, no, they have no credibility. Exactly. None at all. And be, that is exactly the rationale that the protesters are now using. And it's gotten violent is the thing. And so NATO has sent in a bunch of its peacekeeping troops... I think it's about to get up to 3,000. Wow. Italian troops are there. I think Hungarian and I think Turkey just announced that it's sending some of its as well. There have been several injuries to NATO troops and hundreds of the protesters have been injured. So it's like, it's like bad. That's crazy. The only other wrinkle I'll talk about here, because I don't want to go on for too long, is there is still an element of of the geopolitical West versus Russia block happening here. And yeah. there's speculation that the, the Russian, the, the communist side has intentionally drummed up the unrest um, and the conflict because right now Co- Kosovo exists. Right. So it doesn't really have anything to lose and it, sees that if it can if it can grab these little regions of Kosovo which are currently Serbian majorities that'll only the the Russian Chinese or the communist side only communist. has something to gain right and Serbia has been in Russia's proto block for a while yes it's not it's it's kind of unfair to say Serbia is in Russia's block that's kind of controversial but they're in like the they're in the the sphere they're they're basically in the sphere. I really thought they were in the block. It's hard for because they they didn't they don't come out. Serbians won't come out and say like Russia is totally fine for Ukraine. It's mm-hmm. not like unilaterally agreed upon that Russia isn't at fault for the Ukraine stuff. Okay, but you know you'll have like forty percent of the country say it's the Ukraine's fault. 
You know what I mean? Okay. So it's like in the sphere. It's not like Belarus or something. Okay. You know, I actually was getting those two mixed up in my head. No, Belarus is like deep in the Russian sphere where Serbia is more outskirts. But again, why does Serbia have such a distrust of the West? Because they were bombed by NATO in the 90s. Yep. That's why they have the distrust. Now, another controversial opinion. I agree with that bombing. And that is not very popular among progressives. But I do agree with that bombing. So did Bernie Sanders, by the way. Anyway, let's not go on about that. (laughs) Yeah, let's not. That's a whole other topic. Let's, okay. So is there anything else you want to say about Serbia? No, I, I want to transition. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, let's okay. Do it. So the other thing I want to talk about, which I guess can kind of be tied into geology as well. Um, you know, it's so interesting because you are like the international relations guy. I am. You really are. I love it. Yeah, you're, I'm so interested. You're in so it. interested in the chess game that's going on. Yes, I love the chess game. So, so the element to talk about here is the US and Australia recently came to an agreement. And so I read most of the White House fact sheet on this, the agreement is basically to try to increase ties between the two countries to accelerate the green transition. Yeah. The reason this is really important is because Australia is the world's biggest producer of lithium. Lithium is arguably, but probably, the most important element to be used in all green tech. Yeah. Including, like, in It's integral to everything. Exactly. Um, So to be in cahoots with Australia this tightly is super helpful for the U.S. Um, They talked about how they're forming a dedicated forum on clean energy industrial transformation. Um, They're creating a joint task force on critical minerals. And that was something that was really striking about this deal. It's very transparently about the raw resources. Right. Australia has other, like it has large copper deposits too, which are also huge for the development of this technology. Um, and basically the U.S. is saying, yeah, we we need that. And it's very true that something that people don't talk about, that I at least don't hear about a lot with the green transition is the resource needs oh, and yeah, how... Man. We are not there. America doesn't have them in the, in our backyard the same yeah. way. The largest lithium deposits are going to be in Australia, and I think there's a really there's big ones in Bolivia. Now, Chile is what I thought. Chile has another one. Okay, yeah. I know there is lithium deposits in Bolivia. Okay, and Bolivia doesn't have a government that is close to the United States. Hmm. Bolivia is is very anti United States right now. Okay, Chile has a better relationship with the U.S. Hmm. So if we can get a good solid block of uh, raw resource negotiation between chile australia the u.s we could have a powerhouse of green energy yeah. that can compete against china yeah and the, but the thing is right now like these resources aren't even being harvested and not like even really close to the capacity they need to be to drive the green revolution so you're saying they're not being mined enough not like, even. like the deposits are there but we haven't even begun to tap into them yes and that well i mean we've we've begun sure but not at the right rate that we need to to supply the revolution that we're talking about and so i feel like an agreement like this is important because it's like we want you to step on the gas we're this is what we're saying to australia yeah because we are going to be there to buy definitely absolutely there yeah um and we we need to show that like the these investments that you make are not going to be in vain like this is a guaranteed return we will be buying this stuff yes and knowing that the u.s has such an like the u.s is going to have the biggest solar market oh easily um so for australia to hear that should be extremely encouraging that's really all i had to say about that well i wanted to talk about briefly about about 
lithium prices overall mm. is because in 2022, lithium hit its peak of pricing. Yeah. And for the first time, lithium started going down in price this past year. So this year is the first time lithium prices are actually going down. They picked up recently. This is the first time I'm seeing these numbers. I didn't know that it picked back up. Yeah. But it picked up in the beginning of May. Um, hmm. But it's still not even close to the top. Like we're talking, yeah, we're, we're talking a fraction of the cost here. Wow. So I wonder why. Stuff is happening, but it's not fast enough. Yeah. You know, but we're, we're starting to see the trend hmm. that's going to be able to get us to that revolution. We're going to start seeing that increased production and that mineral extraction. It's amazing to see Australia and the United States work so closely together. I think the Australia is actually, a little fun fact here, Australia is the only country that has followed the United States into every war the U.S. has ever gotten including Vietnam. Australia is the only ally the U.S. had who went into Vietnam with them. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then the last thing we want to talk about, which is going to prime us for the book we're going to read. Yes. Is there was a really important Supreme Court case that happened this week. Um, I'll argue it might be one of the most important in terms of labor relations in, a, in, in just a very long time. Okay, um, I'm going to pull, I, I, I read the opinion. Crazy. I know, I know. The work this man is going into. Well, I just, look, I think it's important. And this is the type of stuff where it's like, this is, as I've learned reading the book where we're going to talk about, these Supreme Court cases is where our lives are made up yes. before we even know about it. Before we cast a ballot, this is where a lot of these decisions are getting made. So mm -hmm. the, the the case was between the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and Glacier Northwest Incorporated. And a little background on the deal, a little background about what happened here. So the, the, the truckers in the union were going to go on strike because they weren't able to reach an agreement. The Glacier Northwest wasn't being very compromising in their negotiation. So the Teamsters were going on strike. Now, the day they went on strike, they loaded up their trucks with concrete because con uh, Glacier Northwest is a concrete transportation company. So they're driving around in their mixers. And then at like 11 o'clock a.m., they go, we're going on strike. All the Teamsters drive back to the location, drop off the trucks, and walk off the job. Now, this sounds fine. You're just going on strike. You have the right to strike in the United States. Now, Northwest, Glacier Northwest is arguing that they caused intentional damage to their trucks by not emptying the concrete out of their trucks before they got out and walked off the job. And they didn't have the right to walk off the job because they damaged their trucks. Now, there's differential opinions here because the Teamsters are saying half of our guys did empty the trucks and it wasn't even the union telling them not to empty the trucks. This isn't personal damage. And we left the trucks on mixing so the concrete wasn't hardening so we did those things yes you lost the usage of that concrete that you had to empty out that concrete was gone but we didn't destroy your trucks and it wasn't on purpose yeah now the reason that this is going to the supreme court is because they took it to the washington state supreme court and the washington state supreme court before it got to the supreme court it goes to the the trial then it goes up it gets appealed now we're at the washington state supreme court and they say you don't have the authority to take this to court, Glacier Northwest, because any of these disagreements have to be taken to the National Labor Relations Board as per the National Labor, uh, as per the National Labor Relations Act of the 1930s. So the National Labor Board is supposed to be the person deciding who's in the right and who's in the wrong, not any state government. 
This is a federal oversight thing. And this was done in the 30s to encourage unionization, to encourage collective bargaining, because a lot of states were against collective bargaining. The federal government made this board that was appointed by the president uh, and then approved by the Senate that was going to deal with these disputes. So the state Supreme Court says, we have no jurisdiction. Glacier Northwest, move along. You have no standing. Glacier Northwest says, hell no, we do have standing and we're going to the Supreme Court to prove it. So they go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court sides with Glacier Northwest. Now, this is a really, honestly, it's a really damaging, it's a really damaging hit to the, to, to the labor movement because this is stripping the National Labor Relations Board of its authority. And it's now inserting the court into labor disputes. The court now has a place in striking, in labor. And we have lived in an America where the courts were not allowed to be involved for a very long time. And what's really disappointing is this decision was eight to one. So two liberals sided with the conservatives. Only one liberal dissented. Now, the overall opinion that was approved, written by Amy Coney Barrett, who was the last justice appointed by Trump when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, she distinctly says that the National Labor Relations Board isn't totally neutered by this, and there is still a place, and there aren't so many things that we want to cut out. And they even say, she even says in this decision, like, if you're transporting produce, we're not going to punish you if the produce goes bad because produce is expected to go bad. She says that in her opinion. Mm. What scares me is Justice Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch wrote a counter opinion that wasn't the one that got approved. That's not the one that passed. But when you read these counter opinions, this is where the court goes. This is where, as you see, as we'll read in the book, this is where the court's culture gets created. And Thomas and Gorsuch, um, I, I, I want to read this part that he says here. The parties have not asked us to reconsider Garmin. And I'll talk about what Garmin is in a second. Garmin was another Supreme Court case. Um, the parties here have not asked us to reconsider Garmin, nor is it necessary to do so to resolve this case. Nonetheless, in an appropriate case, we should carefully re-examine whether the law supports Garmin's unusual preemption regime. Now, what is the Garmin case? The Supreme Court held, this is the Garmin case, the Supreme Court held that the California Supreme Court was not entitled to award remedies against a union for picketing. Because if an activity is arguably subject to the acts of the statutes of the National Labor Relations Act, the federal courts must defer to the exclusive com exclusive competence of the National Labor Relations Board. So what Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch are saying explicitly is they think that unions should have to face punishment for picketing and strikes if it causes damages to businesses and courts should have a rule in deciding when those awards should be given and this is just a this is a obliteration of labor yeah, in america just an obliteration terrifying. it's a complete attack on the right to collectively bargain and luckily justice katanji brown jackson who biden recently appointed came out in her in her dissent and she says instead of modestly standing down the majority has eagerly inserted itself into this conflict proceeding to opine on the proprietary of the union strike activity based on the facts alleged in the employer's state court complaint. So she's siding on the side of like, look, the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to do this. What are we doing here? This is their job. 
We, we are stripping the legislature branch of the United States has given this authority to the National Labor Relations Board mm-hmm. and the court without any vote, without any approval, without any consent is stripping away what we voted on so many years ago. Yeah. It's hard to wrap. What's hard to wrap my head around is how the two liberal justices sided against that decision. I don't know where they would be coming from. I think... I think that they were concerned that the union did, in fact, purposefully try to break the trucks. Okay. The unions and all the witnesses have said that they didn't. Mm. So that's just what it is. But I don't know why the liberals have decided that they now have a place in labor disputes. I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know. And and they didn't write anything. I don't know what uh, uh, Justice Kagan or Sotomayor is thinking, the two other liberals. I don't know because they didn't write anything. So I have no idea, but I know that they, I imagine that they only signed on to Amy, Amy Coney Barrett's opinion because Amy Coney Barrett specifically put in that thing about perishable goods mm. and they kind of neutered it a little, yeah. kind of made it lighter, but it is so disappointing. And this is, listen, this is why the court system has to be changed because we already voted on this and it's getting ripped away from us. We never consented to this. Yeah. I mean, that's a, as good of a transition as we're going to get. Yeah. So we started a new book, guys. The book is titled Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-Year Battle for a More Unjust America by Adam Cohen. should show the cover. Yeah. yeah. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it already. First chapter was awesome. And I think it's a really interesting way to study American history through the lens of the courts. It, it gets deep. Deep. And we were talking about last time when we read Stiglitz, we were like, Stiglitz isn't deep enough. Mm. Well, now we got deep enough. Yeah. Because I feel like I've already, I've learned so much in these 50 pages. Yeah. Well, where this is interesting too is it it, it very much focuses on the individual people. Yes. Who are running the Supreme Court. Yes. It's a very, it's like, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's a very narrative book. Yes. It has, it has characters. Yes. It has character development. It has backstabs. Totally. And it's all true. It's a non, and that's when nonfiction books, in my opinion, are at their best. Yeah. When they read like a fiction. You know it what is, I mean? It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the introduction is, is not that. The introduction is more like, let's give the skeleton yes. of where this is going to go. Um, I, it honestly, in some ways, I, as I started the first chapter, I was like, the, the introduction was kind of chapter one light. Right. Yeah. It's like a lot of what is mentioned in the introduction is rehashed and then expounded upon in yes. depth in the first chapter yes um so i guess i get like the introduction begins by showing these three supreme court cases and what they did for america and they all relate to poverty um and it tells the story of people who are impoverished and how the state is working against them for these people to receive their welfare benefits in some way mm-hmm. and how the court is now working with these people on behalf of them to get them their benefits back. And you kind of see this trend of through these three people's eyes, uh, which is Vance, Jack Gross, Lily Ledbetter, these people who had, who were people, they had situations. Well, we'll we'll talk about this. I'll talk about Lily Ledbetter. She worked at Goodyear in Alabama and she was paid less than all of her male counterparts. Now, she tried to get 
uh, she she tried to um, get retroactive pay mm-hmm. because she was being paid unfairly based off gender, but the Supreme Court ruled against her and told her that she didn't meet proper statutory limit she she's like you have to make this complaint the court told her you have to make this complaint within 180 days yeah and she didn't which i will note in the book notes she didn't know that this pay discrepancy existed 180 days after it happened right so it literally would have been impossible and the court knew that and they made this decision anyways it's and, and look the other two cases are like that and it's it's depressing and it talks about these people's stories and how they kind of get disenfranchised mm-hmm. and they get disenchanted with the system because they're like, I was, I, I thought that this court was supposed to be here for me. Yeah. And that's one of the big ideas is that this, the court is, has been held up as the body that is on the side of the little guy, but it has been the exact opposite. It's right. been on a crusade against poor and working people. And we see in our media, right? We see in our media, what are the big Supreme Court cases that we know? We know Brown v. Board, which desegregated the schools, mm-hmm. which have movies made about them. We see all these different aspects of anytime you hear about the Supreme Court, you hear about what they did that was good, how they legalized gay marriage. How You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's not their true history. I do think this is... I'll just really quick. This is maybe turning around after the overturn of Roe. I think it's become very like all of a sudden the court is looking very sinister. And now you have the Clarence Thomas scandal. So maybe this is changing. I think there is a cultural shift in America that is now realizing like the court, as we'll talk about the Warren court in a bit, the, the court is not on your side. Yeah. The court has always been and always will be on the side of the big money. Well, not well, always. no, not always. Right, yes. that's the exception. Yes, it's actually not always. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it, it, what what I want to so it, when we look into history, most of these court decisions have been pro campaign finance, bad for election law, good for corporate law, bad for criminal law, favorite prosecutors most of the time. But there has been exceptions, mm-hmm. and this exception was during the 1950s and the 1960s where we had new people and new justices come to the court that really changed the game. And some of the things that they did in, during this era was they desegregated schools. They gave you the right to an appointed lawyer for those who couldn't afford one. Mm-hmm. Most of my life, I thought that that was a constitutional right from the beginning. I thought that those Miranda rights that they read you, you know, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one would be given to you. I thought that was a part of America, but that was only from the 50s. I didn't know about this either. And that's so interesting because my mom is a public defender. Wow. She is one of those lawyers. That's amazing. Yeah. And you didn't even know that this is, no. it's a recent development in yeah. America. You know, they banned prayer in public school and they had new protections for welfare recipients, which we'll go into a lot today. Yes. You know? Yes. So, I mean, what I have, I, I feel like most of what this good court in the 50s and 60s did is what we're going to get into in chapter one. Yeah. What all the introduction said really is the court has been more bad than good is what I have here. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess I. Oh, the one other thing is it kind of tag teamed with Stiglitz, which was so awesome. Because yes. in the introduction, they quoted Stiglitz. Which is unbelievable. We didn't plan that, guys. No. That wasn't a plan. Not at all. But they specifically cite the 
growing wealth and income inequality in the U.S. as being partially a result of all these court cases. And what I'm, I'm reading this and I'm being like, okay, this is the court giving market power yes. to these massive companies. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's seamless. Seamless connection. Completely and seamless. That's, and that's, again, it's like what I love reading about these books is like Stiglitz, we, we saw the lens of America through Stiglitz talking about wealth and inequality, right? And globalization and financialization. Well, now we're about to look at American inequality through the lens of the court system. Yeah. And it's going to be the same story, but we're going to learn so much more about the reasons and the people fighting on either side. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so now when we when we get into why, I, very briefly, I want to talk about why the court has had a more conservative streak than liberal streak over the last 50 years. Um, honestly, it's because of poor liberal organization. Liberals don't have the same organizational capabilities. And we've talked about this where the Republicans have this thing called the Federalist Society that really trains people up from lawyers to judges to Supreme Court justices. They they do that and they make it a they make it a priority. Liberals don't do the same. Republicans will time their retirements well. Republicans will fight hardball. They won't appoint Merrick Garland at the end of the Obama administration, right? Liberals don't play that same game. They just don't. Luckily, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg not retiring has for Ruth Bader Ginsburg not retiring in 2013 when the Democrats had the Senate will really have some irreparable irreparable consequences that we'll have to live with for a very long time. And Republicans didn't make those mistakes. They don't. Mm -hmm. They don't make them. So that's why we've since Nixon, we've had a completely conservative majority of courts since Richard Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So chapter one chapter one so chapter one starts with this crazy law which we were talking about before the the episode started so this law is called i actually um man of the house man of the house rule the man in the house rule. the man of the house rule so in the in the 50s and 60s there was this rule that several states had that if um single mothers had a quote-unquote male in the house man in the house they weren't entitled to their welfare benefits and what does this... it mean for man in the house man what does that mean <laughs> it's just if there's someone that a woman that a single mother is regularly having sex with unbelievable crazy crazy so because the supposedly the rationale behind this is that 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 man in the house is a surrogate father and a surrogate provider, which obviously does not have to be the case. No. Of course not. Oh, my God. And so it focuses on the case of Sylvester Smith, who was persecuted by this rule, um, and she challenged it and took it to federal court. But before I get into her. that, I will talk about a little like a little bit of the the overall like the bigger picture of this so it was meant to save the government money and it was it, honestly it was just it was a racist law that was meant to be able to allow these governments to clean their welfare roles of black people and it was also a religious law they don't want people having premarital sex yes and one of the um one of the i think it was the attorney general of alabama mm -hmm. specifically said that if these women want their welfare benefits, they can um, they can just stop having sex. Unbelievable. I don't have the quote, and the quote is way better than I just said, but that is what the idea. Yeah, please find it. Um, and the, the reason I, I can say that this was 
a racist law is because 97% of children who lost the welfare benefits from the law were black. And it, w- it was estimated that more than 500,000 children were being denied benefits because of these types of laws across the country. Um, one other quote that I have here is, it reflected this view that welfare was an inducement to immoral behavior, which yeah. I, I feel like is a sentiment that strongly persists throughout the country's history into the present. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we'll we talk about this more, but the Supreme Court has a really interesting quote about poverty and whose fault it is. And this is these types of laws are just directly attacking the poor and saying, like, this is all your fault. Yeah. And so this is what the top welfare official in Alabama said. You ready? Mm-hmm. Top, Alabama's top a fit welfare official defended the man in the house rule by saying that a mother who lost her benefits could always choose to give up her pleasure and act like a woman ought to to get them back. Unbelievable. Insane. And that and what we Insane. need what I need to get in the audience head is that this was happening when your grandmother was alive, guys. Mm-hmm. This is not ancient history. Yeah. This is when your grandmother was growing up. Mm-hmm. This is this is the people who raised your parents. Yeah. The weird thing is I like the idea that is in my head right now is we're we're being too dismissive of these ideas. Yes. Because I I know there's a large constituency of people who feel similarly to this today. Like feel like it is morally wrong for a woman to sleep around. I know, and we're so disconnected from that. I can't even understand where that's coming from, to be honest. But I, it's hard for me to put myself in that position of like trying to understand who would be for something like this. I also... I can't. It's hard for me. You yeah. Know? We try to be pretty good on this show by showing both sides. I think we do a pretty good job a lot mm-hmm. of the time. We give credit where credit is due, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's any credit here at all. Yeah. Well, it. I mean, at the very least, it seems it seems kind of ridiculous. And one of the things that, that the book said is one of the arguments that was made is why should these children be punished for yes. actions that they have no part in? That's exactly. their, only their mother is taking part. Right. In. This is the child's benefit. This is their benefit. This isn't the parent's benefit. This is their benefit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You said 97% of those children were back. black. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, you know? it's painful. So then I, I just took some notes on the story um, of this particular yeah. case because lawyers from Northern lawyers from Columbia in New York took the case because they were excited about the potential civil rights implications it could have, the exactly. progress they could make. And, and look, this is important because now what they think is they can attack, they can tie this to the to expanding the Fourteenth Amendment, and we can expand the Fourteenth Amendment to say, who does the Fourteenth Amendment protect? It it protects minorities. Well, maybe the poor is a minority. Maybe we can say that the poor have the same legal protections and rights as religious protections or race protections or gender protections. What if we expanded that to the poor and the Columbia's University for Center and Social Welfare thinks that they could get that victory through her case? Yes. And so that's kind of what the story of this whole chapter is, is Mm -hmm. the pursuit of that recognition by the Supreme Court that the poor are an underprivileged class that cannot be discriminated against yes. for being poor. Yes. So Sylvester Smith wins the case 9 nothing unanimously in the Supreme Court 1968 we're in now 1968. Yes, and this rule this holds that the man of the house rule violates 
an AFDC statute. And this is the important thing is it doesn't make this declaration that the poor are a class that cannot be discriminated against. Yes. They avoid referencing the constitution in the ruling. Yes. Um, and instead say that, I don't, I don't know. Well, they said, they said it was, they, they ruled it through AFDC statute and directly avoided the constitutionality. And this is called constitutional avoidance. Mm. That's what this is. And the court wasn't crafting any new constitutional rights here that people could apply to other cases. That's kind of why it got nine zero. That's why it was unanimous because it's like, okay, for this case and for this law, we get it. But I don't want this being done on any other things, right? Exactly. So, and then the North Carolina Law Review, which is fairly, I think, conservative in their nature, said this. This decision very likely signifies a new role for the Supreme Court in protecting the rights of welfare recipients, though it is of small significance compared with the work yet to be done. Um, So, you know, maybe they're a liberal law review there. But Mm. point is, this is now the Supreme Court taking a real position on poverty that it hadn't done in the past. Yeah. And so the book goes on and it says this was the culmination of this decades-long drive yeah. to establish greater legal rights from the poor. And so it kind of drops this in 1968 and then it rewinds yeah. back into the past. Um, something they talk about in the introduction, but then it gets much more um, specific in chapter one. So they talk about the Warren Court. So there was a Supreme Court, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, nominated, I think, in 1953 or appointed in 1953. Um, yes, served, by Dwight Eisenhower, yes, by a Republican. Yes. What a he, mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he served through 1969. Um, and the, his court, while he was Chief Justice, was called the Warren Court. And it had a series of rulings in favor of the people. It, the The chapter talks about how, or the introduction, I think, talks about how before the Warren Court, there are tons of Supreme Court rulings that rule in favor of slave owners, rule in favor right. of the segregation, powerful. rule in favor of corporations. Yeah. Yes. And then there's this outlier Warren Court. Um so Warren ruled for Sylvester Smith. Next, it um, or no, and it also talks about how this this liberal lean maybe started a little bit earlier. Well, I want to talk about the 1938 decision because I think this is sure. where we really get this massive. So Great Depression happens, and the New Dealers get to Washington in 1933. Massive influx of Democrats from all over the country following FDR's path and what they want to do with the country. And there's a 1938 decision, United States versus Caroline Products. And this case expanded the Equal Protection Clause to mean special protection to the most vulnerable groups in society. But it didn't specify poor. And what is notable here is this specific footnote of the decision. It's titled Footnote 4. That's what it's known uh, colloquially. Footnote 4 emphasized when the court reviewed most laws, they would be highly differential and rarely ruled unconstitutional, except in the case of laws that put a special burden on discrete and insular minorities. So then I'd ask the question, what does, what does it mean to be a discrete and insular minority? Is poor, insular, and discrete? Poor people were seen in a better... And, and so that right there is the beginning of the push. Mm-hmm. Because poverty law wasn't a thing yet, but people who were interested in fighting poverty 
saw that footnote and were like, we have an opening now. The same way that I'm worried because of the Supreme Court this week, people will read Justice, Justice Clarence Thomas's opinion and say, oh, there's an opening there. Mm-hmm. Liberal lawyers across the country read that and they're like, oh, we have an opening. We can now fight. We have a leg to stand on now. Yeah. And that footnote four, the battle over footnote four, I think is kind of the whole point of the chapter. Yes, absolutely. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I want to talk a little more about Earl Warren, the man. Sure. So Earl Warren is such an interesting figure. The yeah. fact that he was nominated by Dwight Eisenhower and actually worked to get Dwight Eisenhower the nomination in 1952. And that's why Eisenhower picked him was because Warren was like an ally and all that. But who did – Warren wasn't really aligned ideologically with Eisenhower. He, he just wasn't. No. Warren had a distrust of corporations, a respect for workers, and he admired the Bull Moose Party. The Bull Moose Party was the progressive party started by Teddy Roosevelt in the 1912 election. Um, so he, he's a fairly progressive guy, but Warren didn't even support the New Deal from the very beginning. He had an actual distrust of a lot of government stuff, and it wasn't until he became governor of California where he started to come around. And this is what I found so interesting. Earl Warren pushed for a universal health care program paid for by payroll taxes in the state of California. He was pushing for that in 1948. And here we are arguing about that in 2023. Yeah. And I, I think that was incredible. So that really tells you a lot about the man. Um, not all great. He was in favor of Japanese internment. So obviously he has his problems. Yes. Right. But it, what he also is, I think, a unique figure because he came from poverty. This is a man who came from the working class. His he yep. his father was a struggling man. His wife, uh, his wife, his his mother was struggling to make ends meet with the children and the brothers and sisters he had. And he grew up around poverty. He grew up in the working class, and he knew the working class. And yeah. I think that informed a lot of his decisions on the court. And it and, and I think it informed his decisions on things like his positions on healthcare. You know, his positions on school funding and elderly pensions. And I think it was. It was him who worked um, on the railroad when he was a kid. That's right. Um, and he specifically saw that this this company would fire, would, would kind of clean house of its workers at the end of the fiscal year so that it could pay larger dividends to its shareholders, to its owners. Um, and because of that, he grew this distrust in corporations. There you go. And when you describe him, I also think about it kind of sounds similar to how they describe a lot of the other liberal justices that served with him, that yes. they were all of these people who grew up in poverty. They had experienced it firsthand. So they were specifically sympathetic to the movement. And it's something that the book also mentions kind of arose from the great depression yes. because that's when a lot of upper and middle-class people found their way into poverty for the first time and they could become more empathetic of how terrible of a situation it is right and want to see those people get support and i think they wanted support themselves it was the first time people were realizing like it's not their fault they're poor exactly that's the first because they because when the middle class fell into poverty they were like oh it can happen to anybody Mm -hmm. you know and and now i want to there's there was another court case in 1956 griffin versus illinois And this was a big moment in American history. This decision presented the opportunity to make poor people a class with special protections. Um, 
unfortunately, it lost 5-4. Um, it was unfortunate, but one of the liberal justices wrote, what's wrong? Well, I think I think they want, they, the court still struck down the law. Yes. The Illinois, no, yeah. The, cut, yeah. the court struck down the law, but the the more progressive option of making the poor a protected class didn't win out. Yeah. Yes. They still struck down the law. Okay. Yeah. I just want to be clear about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't get the full decision that they wanted. And that's a theme. That's a theme. Yeah. Well, because the, the first instance of that that it talks about is in 1941, mm-hmm. Edwards v. California. Right. Where there's a challenge brought against California law where they had outlawed, literally, they just outlawed bringing poor people into the state. So which crazy. also sounds insane. And insane. The, the, the case specifically was brought by a, a person who had driven his family from texas into california to have a baby there and he got arrested and put in jail for six months and or or maybe he was going to be until he appealed this and once again the court struck down the california law but it was it was on the the point that it violated the commerce clause right the commerce clause which says that people can't be restricted from travel mm-hmm. um, within the country it is not because the poor were a protected group that were being discriminated against yeah so it didn't it had that opportunity it didn't take it it did make a little bit of progress because it had language that specifically said that because a person is without employment and without funds and that he constitutes a quote moral pestilence is not true. That's an awesome part of and the that, decision. And that moral pestilence like line had been used in many prior decisions. Yes. And they totally threw that out. Yes. Right. That's them taking it that's them taking the Sharpie to all of that, all in the past decisions, right? That's mm-hmm. overruling a lot of precedent there. Yes. That's amazing. That was an amazing step. Yeah. You know? And this is again where where I I'm thinking about all the people that I that I assume and I, I think is clear based on some of the social media comments we've been getting recently yeah. that do think that someone being poor means they have moral oh. pestilence. Um, and I, I, hmm, I wonder if like, if there are ways for us to build, like to try to inspire compassion, like, well, I, I think there are ways you have to slightly either ex- you have to expose yourself to that struggle of those people to understand what they're going through mm. or you have to read about it and watch it mm. and i think in the 1960s you saw that because a book written by michael harrington called the other america showed a detailed report of the poor in the united states and this was the first time a lot of upper middle class upper class people really got a detailed report about what was going on in rural parts of the country, in deep urban slums, what was happening. And Michael Harrington reported that to them. And I think it inspired that inspired a lot of the Johnson's Great Society movement. Mm. It inspired a lot of that. Because people weren't aware. And I think when we get comments online that are what what was the word? Moral pestilence? Pestilence. Pestilence, moral pestilence. They just don't know how bad it is. And I think that if they were able to see how bad it was and understand and meet somebody struggling and have a conversation with them and humanize them, 
they would understand they're not bad people. They're just struggling. And it could be you, you know, you never know when it's going to be you who needs a handout and needs a help, you know? Yeah. And so you need to be willing to put your hand out whenever you can, because you're going to want someone else to do the same for you. I agree. Yeah. I think it like, it really takes this basic, this basic shift in perspective of like thinking that people are trying not to work are trying to yeah. exploit the system yeah um and that we need to stop giving handouts from the system because we're just serving the people that are trying to exploit it and instead that people want to succeed they want to live a life where they're supporting themselves yeah but it's just not always possible yeah and we should not punish those people and we get into like we always talk about difference between economic um equality of opportunity and equality of outcome or whatever but the supreme court even makes the it makes the argument later on where they're like you don't have equality of opportunity if you're hungry exactly you don't have equality of opportunity if you don't know where your health care is coming from or you have to take care of your sick parents because they're too poor you don't have equality of opportunity at that point mm-hmm. and that's a really important aspect of a lot of these supreme court cases that get decided on later on you know um absolutely and so and also i want to know michael harrington was actually the founder of the democratic socialists of america really yeah michael harrington founded that organization um yeah he had some fights with the students for a democratic society who were the democratic socialists of the 60s but that could be a conversation another time all right (laughs) wonderful (laughs) so so griffin v illinois happens in 56 yes they don't, they once again don't use the opportunity to identify the poor as a, a group that should not face discrimination. So at this time, it talks about the context in the country where support for the poor is starting to build. There are academic movements starting um, to, to say that being provided with the subsistence to live with your basic needs, such yes. as housing and food, is something that should be given under the 14th Amendment. Right. This is something that's coming out of lawyers now, poverty lawyers that are talking about this. Yes. And they're trying to plan ways about how to get this to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So um, that's exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. The, the Supreme Court had a lot of other great decisions. Douglas v. California was the big one. We talked about this. Mm. Um, it ruled 6-3 that decided poor people have a right to a lawyer on their first appeal. Yeah. Um, and so, and then this is what I took this quote out of the out of the out of the opinion here. They specifically said this: an unconstitutional line has been drawn between rich and poor, and that strong language being in the Supreme Court decision, which is such a fantastic move in the right direction. Yes, and it's such a break from where the court has been and where it is now. Right? Yeah. There's a really fantastic piece of that, and again, about this fight on poverty that's become more prominent in the '60s. This is what is inspiring Martin Luther King, fighting for a guaranteed job and a guaranteed universal basic income. Yeah. Uh, the freedom budget for all, he called it. You have Johnson declaring an all-out war on human poverty in these United States. Mm-hmm. Johnson making head start. He made Medicare. And then we talk about how people in their people have a right to live and what that means to have a right to live. It yeah. means having a right to food, having a right to a home, you know? Honestly, it was it was kind of crazy mm-hmm. reading it was this in here referencing this is happening in the '60s because these ideas. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe this book isn't accurately representing how fringe or mainstream these are, but they feel extremely fringe to me now. Right, and it, 
to, for it to be, it seems, I mean, by the way it describes it, it seems like they might have been very, quite popular, like really on the verge of happening. Well, Johnson had a great society and it was popular. Head Start was popular. Medicare was popular. Mm. These things were popular when they were created. Yeah. And he had a lot of support from these decisions where he didn't have support was Vietnam and stuff like that. But on these poverty issues, he was in the majority. Well, it's so interesting because that the, my question is in the in the national narrative is is then is Reagan the Reagan the reason that this is no longer so popular that we don't have it as part of the central narrative and this all just seems fringe and not actually within our grasp. Well, I it's a fantastic question and we'll we have to address it more at some point deeply, but I think genuinely when I want to look. I want to talk about briefly about the 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 changes of poverty over American history, and the two big decreases in poverty happened in the '30s when we passed Social Security, and it happened in the '60s when we implemented the Great Society. We have had basically the same poverty level since the 1970s. Mm. Hasn't changed. It's actually so cyclical to the American business cycle that the poverty rate is a recession indicator. That when the poverty rate gets too low we're in time for a recession. That's how caked in our current baseline level of poverty at like 12, 11% is. Mm. And it's because government took their hands off the wheel and said that we're not at war with poverty anymore. Yeah. Because when we declared war on poverty in the 30s and the 60s, we kicked its ass. We didn't fix it. We didn't win. It was the bat- we didn't we won a couple battles. We didn't win the war yet. Yeah. And then we gave up. But we could have won the war. But we could have won the war. And we can still win the war. That's how I feel. True. You know? One sec. Yeah. I want to pause because I've been looking at this. Okay. It's been getting in my head because I feel like I just need this slight tweak. Whenever I lean back, uh huh. I feel like I'm just a little not on camera. Oh, okay. Wait. I'm, all, I'm still in the frame. I'm good. Yeah, you're totally fine. Yeah. Am I? Now I'm. So wait, let me check. I lean back. I'm still in frame. Okay, so now we're gonna okay we're gonna transition now to more political backroom dealing yes. little finger type shit. Yes, that's where I'm at. I okay. didn't take as specific notes on this. I don't think we need to talk about it for very long. I don't think that it's as as interesting from a policy perspective. We no. can just kind of say how Fortas like yeah got fucked. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, that is interesting. So I. I it's fun to talk about yeah okay you clap when you're ready so i guess the the story now comes to the end yeah of the warren court mm-hmm. which ends up being kind of the end of this liberal streak mm-hmm. of the court when earl warren was the chief justice at the nearing the end of his term in 1968 he had five other liberal justices on the court, I believe. Um, but what was happening was Lyndon Johnson was ending, was nearing the end of his second term. Um, Earl Warren was keeping his eye on the political scene in which Nixon was starting to appear like a very viable candidate, one that had a very good chance of winning the presidency. Right. At the time, Warren was 77 and he he didn't want to make the mistake that we were just talking about Democrats often making with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where he dies with a Republican in office. Right. 
So he has, he hatches a plan and he's like, all right, I'm going to go. It's in like June of 1968 and the election is going to be at the end of that year. He says, I'm going to go to Lyndon Johnson and I'm going to resign so that he can elevate a liberal justice to chief justice of the Supreme Court and nominate another liberal justice. Yeah. So he goes to Lyndon Johnson. Johnson is like, that sounds great. That's swell. Um, And they decide, okay, we can... We can elevate Abe Fortas to Chief Justice. And then it goes into a lot of exposition about Fortas himself. Yeah. I don't have a ton of that here. I'll say briefly. He was known, he grew up in destitute poverty. Um, he was a Jewish immigrant. He grew up in the South, Memphis, Tennessee. So being a Jew from the South in poverty, it's not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. But he was inspired by FDR and he went to Yale Law School because he was so intelligent. And he became general counsel uh, of the Public Works Administration. And he def- so now here is one thing I want to talk about Fortas's past, where I think is actually a really good example of Johnson and Fortas being really good friends. Fortas defended Johnson in an election case for the 1948 Texas Senate primary. This is actually really important because it has now been proven that Johnson did steal that election. It has been proven that he stuffed the ballot boxes and he stole. He should never have been a senator from Texas. He completely stole the election. And Fortas defended him in that case. Holy cow. Yes, it has been found out that Johnson has completely stole that election. That's crazy. Knowing a lot about Johnson, if you read Robert Caro's biographies, he, he was rigging elections since he started. He, he, he rigged, he rigged the, the, the student government elections in his college. That's insane. So he rigged the Senate primary too. Wow. And then Fortas defended him. Whether or not Fortas knew the truth, I'll never know. But maybe he did. Yeah. Point is, Fortas and Johnson became very, very close. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so, so Johnson's like, let's, let's nominate. Let's nominate Fortas. Yep. And it goes to the Senate, but he starts to face opposition. Deep opposition. Do you hear that? I thought that was coming outside. from outside. My bad. Um, okay. So he, he faces opposition on, on several fronts. And one is... Uh, no, never mind. I think I was going to bring up something that came up later okay in this story well so what i have from fortas here is like there were there there's really a couple lines of attack the first one is he was he was the okay oh geez this is the one i'll talk about first okay okay he was jew from the south we have uh southern senator james eastland of mississippi saying i could not go back to mississippi if a jewish jewish chief justice swore in the next president Mm -hmm. so that's one front he's getting attacked on now, the next one, Fortas supplemented his salary with a lectureship at the university law school, at the American University Law School, funded by contributors that included some of Fortas's former clients. Mm. This isn't that out of the ordinary. They always, justices always have lectureships that they get paid for. But what was notable was how much money he was actually getting. It was like 110 grand. That was a lot of money for them, you know. And his appointment was popular at home with the people at a two to one ratio with some polling. But for the first time ever, yes, a Senate filibuster killed a Supreme Court nomination. That's that, that's what killed Garland. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, well, that's not the only thing that killed Garland. But you know, that's 
first time that happened in our history. And I think that's a really defining moment of our division. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so Fortas didn't get confirmed. But meanwhile, Warren had already sent in his resignation. Yeah. So the court was going to be left with an open seat. And Nixon beat Humphrey in 68. So now Nixon is coming in and he is going to be able to appoint some justices right off the bat. He's going to be able to appoint one off the bat, but he wants more. He wants more. Um, the, The book is very descriptive about how excited nixon gets about putting justices on the court yes because you had two decades of back-to-back conservative losses over and over again at the supreme court level Mm -hmm. and he views himself as a possible transformational figure to remake the country in a conservative image for a generation if only he gets the chance yes and he's gonna make the chance he's not gonna leave it up to fate he's gonna push to make sure he gets this yeah so he starts a campaign against Fortas, and he uses pretty much every trick in the book. Yeah, he has these these subtle threats, even though they 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 might be bluffs. But he talks like he leaks that the Department of Justice is going to investigate him. He plays up this connection that fortas has with someone that he represented in the past Mm -hmm. um who was then in trouble so this guy fortas represented got in trouble with the sec and during this in during this investigation when this guy was getting interrogated he dropped uh, allegedly dropped fortes's name fortas's name and fortas had no knowing of this fortas Mm -hmm. was not helping him and this guy has even come out and said at a specific point like fortas never helped me yeah. But he's tying him to this. And the people in the Nixon administration even came in and said, oh, no, we didn't actually have anything on him. It was right. a total bluff. Yeah, total bluff. Yeah. But it ended up working because the pressure built and built. And it wasn't just that Nixon was coming at him. It's that Nixon partnered with Warren. And this is the most heartbreaking thing. It's tragic. Me. Because Warren was... Nixon was, basically charmed him. Nixon, he was too good. Honestly, I think Warren was too I think Warren was too He was he he was he was too um what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, uh, he was just too trusting. Mm. He was too trusting and he he was he 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 loved the court as an institution and what it was. And he didn't want his tenure to be remembered with these ethics scandals with Fortas. He wanted to be above all that, you know? Yes. He wanted to be clean. Totally. He was very invested in his reputation. Yeah. And that of his court. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he started to get scared that it was going to be tarnished. And he convened this meeting with all of the justices and he brought up these allegations against against Fortas. And they were like, okay, what are, what are we going to do about this? And I don't think it goes into detail about what whether they decided on anything in that meeting. And it didn't have to because the next day Fortas resigned. The next day Fortas resigned. And he just said that he didn't want to deal with it anymore. So now, and and it was so fortunate that Nixon got Warren at this time because he he got him between when Warren had agreed to resign and before he had actually left the court. Right. So he really was able to manipulate that. And they talk about how there was a party in the attorney general's office um, for Nixon after they got Fortas to resign from the court because it was all bluff. Like it, there was nothing there behind their threats. Um, they threatened to go after his wife. 
Yeah. You know, they threatened a lot and they called his bluff and he went away. And I, I think it's just unbelievable that so much, so much that's going to happen in the following chapters is because of this moment. Yes. And that's what's so tragic. So much of what is about to happen, all the progress that was made during the Warren court, so much of it is about to get ro- railroaded mm-hmm. because of a poor use of executive overreach. Uh, you know, uh, it's just an unbelievable usage of the Justice Department. Yeah. Fortas's last vote in the Supreme Court, his last one, was for case uh, Shapiro v. Thompson, and it overturned duration residency laws. So people were saying that by, uh, besides making this did not make poor protected class. It did not, unfortunately. And there was a more moderate interpretation that won out. And this interpretation was, this law is discriminating against new residents as opposed to long-term residents, and that is an infringement on the right to travel. Now, by this point, there was a different chief justice of the court, William Berger. He is the new chief justice by this point. And he writes something. He says, he he said... um, Oh, no, no, he wasn't. He hasn't been. He wasn't the chief justice yet. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. But conservatives overall did fear that the court was close to creating a constitutional right to welfare assistance. Yes. Yes. And that, yeah. So conservatives are now getting very antsy with Mm -hmm. where the Warren court is heading. And well, they're about to have their way. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get to that on our next book club segment. Yes. Okay. Happy note. Uh, Perfect. We, we transition to China and the U.S. So I think we're going to be looking at the relationship, but if anything, we're probably going to be looking more at China. Yeah. Because um, I think, I, I don't think it's it's a lot to say that our audience is going to be more familiar with American ideology. You think? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we want to get into what is China's governmental ideology? What has... How has it been developing over the past several decades? What does their economy look like? And then what does the interplay right. between our countries look How like? do these two ideologies interact with each other on the global scale? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I th- I guess we should start with kind of overview yeah. stuff. China is the most populous country in the world. It has over 1.4 billion people. India recently passed them. Oh, did days. it? Yeah, a couple of days I, ago. A couple of days ago? A couple, maybe a week or two ago. I really thought I, I checked it. Okay. Okay. China is one very close yes. to the most popular. It has over 1.4 billion people. Yes. Um, it has the second highest GDP in the world, which is really what puts it at this level of like seeming to be the, it is the other competing world power right. with the US. So China's GDP in 2022 was $14.72 trillion. America's was twenty point seven eight trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, it is led by Xi Jinping. Um, it is under communist rule, and what our author argued is that it is a totalitarian rule. Right, and that means that the Communist Party has control over all aspects of the country. All the government. The economy, surveillance of citizens, anything you can really think of, the government has a hand in. Mm-hmm. What has happened, and I'm 
jump in whenever because I don't I'm not super organized with my ideas here. Yeah. Um where where she is right now is essentially complete consolidation of power. Yeah. He kind of has this cult of personality where he he doesn't even have dissenting voices around him. This is really a one man dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Which again, obviously distinct from American ideology. But I think I think that's perfect to encapsulate what China is at right now in their ideology because China at its foundation, the People's Republic of China was a deeply ideological project, deeply ideological with Mao Zedong fighting yeah. revolutions in the mountains and you know going around designing such a bad policy around his ideology that millions of people die. He was so committed to his ideology that he was starving people, okay? That's how committed he was to this. Yeah. And you know, people feel like they people lost touch with the ideology, and then you have the Cultural Revolution of the '60s, and the Cultural Revolution was people going back to Mao Zedong and praising him and trying to get his ideas back into government about the people who they viewed as took it away in the '50s, and this Cultural Revolution, this deeply ideological movement, kind of loses face. And the deep ideology fails to falls to pragmatism. And I would describe yes. China's current ideology as not, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't even say it's a communist state. I wouldn't, I would say it's a pragmatic state. And I would say that mm-hmm. the communist party is in a fight for survival. They are in a constant fight for survival. Yes. And they are doing whatever is necessary for their survival yeah so one of the things this describes is like what are the the motivations yes exactly of the the chinese communist party the ccp and it is this fear this constant fear that it will be overthrown and that the reason that fear is so powerful is because the chinese government has taught its officials about what has happened to other communist governments yes that have fallen and shown executions how people have lost their jobs so this is these are now personal fears that was so interesting how they really attacked they really tied the personal fears to make them like committed to the institutions yes you know what i mean yeah yeah and and but meanwhile there's there is another side that is a desire to spread its own hegemony right is as it sees where it sees the u.s is kind of and I, I would agree with this, having a hegemony oh, yeah. over a large amount of the world, mm-hmm. um, the more the richer, more powerful parts of the world, mm-hmm. to be sure. Um, I really do want to talk about this history because mm-hmm. I'm so interested in it. Yeah. Because I, I guess I feel like my knowledge of this really starts more post-Mao. So in the 70s, because this is where the U.S.-China relationship really begins. Right. After World War II, in the Cold War, the U.S. for many years doesn't recognize like mainland China as the official China because after World War II and like between 1945 and 1950, there's a civil war mm-hmm. in China, and the Democratic faction loses and escapes to Taiwan. They retreat. They're still there. Mm-hmm. The U.S. recognized Taiwan as the official China. All the way up until 1972. Mm-hmm. Then Nixon gets into office. And Nixon kind of sees China as his pet project. He is excited about the possibility of 
incorporating them into the world order because yeah. he sees their massive population. He's like, they're going to, with a population this big, they're going to have to be important. Well, so, FDR says in the 40s, in world during World War II, he's like, China will be one of the main five. He thinks like the main, the, what FDR says, America, Russia, France, Britain, and China are mm. the main five. Okay. And this is Nixon kind of reverting back to that, I think. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so so because of that, he wants to fold China in. And there's also this allure of having China as a counterweight. To the Soviets. Exactly. Right. And they had just had this border conflict between China and Russia mm-hmm. um, that Nixon's like, okay, this is a perfect time to go in and partner with them. So Nixon has a summit, I think, with Mao in 1972. I don't know. Um, where... They officially recognize mainland China as the official country. Um, And in the 70s, relations start to build. And then in 1979, there's a shift. Yeah. The leader of China has transitioned to Deng Xiaoping. um, And he visited the U.S. on January 1st, 1979. And he's super impressed with what he sees he there's a quote i think in this paper about how like like after he's been to the u.s he's like ah yes now i see what a rich nation is uh and there are quotes from other members of the administration that say uh, we're all savages here they that's what a truly civilized society is yeah so once they see that he he's inspired and he wants to transform china um but he needs to institute political and economic reform mm-hmm. to get there there's not enough money there's not enough development happening fast enough with the communist organization that they have so he starts by designating these special economic zones yeah um and 12 makes, major cities along the coast i thought it was 14 might have been 14 doesn't matter basically yeah there are these major cities along the coast that that the law designates they can be treated specially there are a few things that this does. It grants them more capitalist freedoms, like the opportunity for trade and investment that doesn't have to be explicitly approved by Beijing, mm. which is huge because it means foreign investment is brought in. There are business incentives for greater development. And the other thing that Deng Xiaoping did is introduce profit sharing in the government. So that the Communist Party officials that led to more growth Mm. got a cut of it. It's almost like putting the the capitalist innovation incentives that we always prize so much in America. You're folding that into the government. Exactly. Exactly. And so after that, China starts to explode economically. China's growing at at least 9% per year GDP every year. Right. From like, I think 1979 all the way up through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's utilizing these capitalistic policies to grow. But the thing is, the whole time the CCP is very careful yeah. to hold on to control. Right. Um, that's their fear. Yes. Their fear is like, okay, it's it's this counterweight of we need the development that comes with foreign capital, mm-hmm. but we don't want any political reform. We yes. only want the economic reform. That's really what it is. They're, 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 they're trying to have one without the other. And what America thinks is, well, you can't have one without the other. 
Nixon thinks if you do economic liberalization, political liberalization is coming whether you like it or not. Exactly. That's what the whole world thinks. Yes. China proves them wrong. Yeah. And China is so explicit about this because they explicitly put down ideological revolutions that are moving towards democracy and towards liberalism through the 80s. There's a student revolution, I think, in 1986 Mm -hmm. that ends up quietly being being put down. There's uh, an ideological revolution within the government where I think in 84 or something where Deng Xiaoping expels everybody who is on that side. Well, there was a push to try to reform Marxist literature. There was a, and there was an internal project trying to change or reimagine the interpretation of Marx that mm. the Communist Party is based on, that the state is based on, and conservatives kicked them right out of the government. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of, that's been the pattern. And then it kind of culminated in the Tiananmen Square protests. Right, the June 4th incident. Yes. Uh, so Tiananmen Square happens. The West puts a ton of sanctions on China. They're like, this is abhorrent this is crazy uh and deng xiaoping is is worried about losing the faith of the party internally because he's worried that everyone else is going to lose confidence without the support of the international community right but he is personally defiant and he makes speeches internally about how they don't need the West, um, that they have a large population and they can continue to grow economically without the external consumption. Well, he's thinking like the West needs us more than we need them. Yes. The West needs us because we're the biggest market. Exactly. Right? That's, what they, that's what he's suggesting. It's like if you, if the, the Western powers will always help us grow because they know they'll be able to sell their stuff to us and they will love us. And yes. we have them basically by the balls. Exactly. Exactly. You know? And so there's this, this is happening almost just at the same time as the Soviet Union collapsing. Yeah. Which is a huge shock to really to everyone globally mm-hmm. and definitely to China, who's the other major communist power yeah. in the world. Um, and so this is when Deng Xiaoping starts emphasizing a policy of what is the English translation is kind of waiting and or hiding the fact that we can that we bide our time right so this idea that china knows that it's not ready to compete with the west on Mm -hmm. the global stage yet so instead we're going to keep using them we're going to keep cooperating with them gathering knowledge from them gathering technology from them selling to them so we can build up our own economic capacity right because we can't reveal our true intentions of wanting our own global hegemony yet and i want to talk about briefly about uh, i just rewind a second for chinese history here china was cut up and carved up by the imperial powers in the 19th century in the 1800s and britain was going in there and killing people to sell their opium and we think about the 19th century and the 20th century as the age of British hegemony, the age of American hegemony. And maybe maybe we call that Pax, Pax Americana, the American peace, or Pax Britannica, the British peace. China has a name for that century too. You know what that name is? No. They call it the age of humiliation. Wow. They are done with the age of humiliation. Mm. In... in, in Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, geez, 
In Xi Jinping's recent speech to the party congress, he explicitly stated, the age of humiliation is over. And when we talk about how Deng Xiaoping is talking about biding our time, mm-hmm. China, it is now time. Yes. So Deng Xiaoping is waiting. He's like, we're in the oven right now. Right. We're about, we're, we're going to get out of this age of humiliation. Yes. I have a, a quote right here from the paper that I, I want to read. I, I feel like I should read because I put it on my notes and so it's probably good. Yeah. So this says, if China wanted to enter the international economic community and use the world market to increase its national power, China could only achieve this by acting softly, yeah. lowering its posture and keeping a low profile in dealing with the U.S. and the Western world. In other words, China must deceive the West by hiding its long-term strategic goals, pretending to be weak and harmless in order to take advantage of Western markets, technology, capital, and talent, while waiting for the opportunity to strike back and win the ultimate war. This was an ancient strategy that Chinese emperors and kings had used many times in the past. Wow. I love, I feel like that sums it up super well definitely this this point and i think they've they've done it very successfully i think yeah and there's this we've given them their superpower status she talks about how we've what we welcome them into the world trade organization and oh what a mistake yeah it's not only that we have allowed so much private investment in china but we let them into the world trade organization to really like kind of oil the gears on their integration into the economy and this quote these quotes from, from Clinton and Bush, I also want to read out. Oh, I, I, think, I wrote those down too. Okay, these are perfect. Yeah, they are. Clinton said, by joining the WTO, China is not simply agreeing to import more of our products. It is agreeing to import one of democracy's most cherished values, economic freedom. The more China liberalizes its economy, the more fully it will liberate the potential of its people, their initiative, their imagination, their remarkable spirit of enterprise, and the genie of freedom will not go back into the bottle. Then Bush said, Economic freedom creates the habits of liberty, and habits of liberty create expectations of democracy. Oh my God. Trade freely with China, and time is on our side. That is so unbelievable to look back on. Arrogant. So arrogant. 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 So naive. The thought that democracy just needs to be the end point. And you know what's so funny? How we think about the communists as the ideologues. Those are the most ideological driven statements I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. That is deep. That is like religious. That is like religious devotion yes. to faith here. Yeah. And, like, like, was that written in Adam Smith? Yeah, right? Yeah. I, I just can't believe that that was what the position was. And it was so incorrect. And China's ability to be a pragmatic state really just unbelievably, it, it makes itself so much more nimble and flexible. Yes. And in the long term, strong. Because it's going to be able to do the things that are necessary. And the state is organized in a way that it doesn't have these ideological barriers to it mm. where that America does. True. I mean, it has ideological barriers in that, like, they're not going to allow democracy oh, to, sure. yeah. to infiltrate, yes. you know. But with because of Xi's unilateral power now, they can pivot like that. Exactly. And I think usually there's this idea that 
totalitarian governments are going to be weaker because there's not going to be as much innovation or difference in ideas. Right, because when there's no dissent, there's no there's no one to tell the guy no when he's obviously wrong. Exactly. But one thing about the current structure of the Chinese government is that the provincial governments are incentivized to experiment right. and to be different. And they do. And they do. And, and then she can go in and nationalize those policies. And the other thing is that, like... There has been a recent change here where the – so COVID happens. Oh, and yeah, that, even that was huge. with COVID, there have been changes because China went with their zero, zero COVID policy and they were like, okay, we're going to prioritize just getting the fewest people infected. Mm-hmm. And then there were massive revolts. And those were unprecedented against the Chinese Communist Party because the uh, Tiananmen Square, right. it seems happen. foolish to do that. The crazy thing is they worked, and they worked fast. She saw the protests and almost immediately reversed the zero COVID policy, which is frightening in a way because it means that, okay, it's not just one dictator who's one ideologue who's... Right. He's not Mao, That's right? Exactly he's not right. going to starve his country. Exactly right. Yeah. He's exactly going right, to try then. to win still. Yes. He's not, he, he, he is in it for the power game, and dealing with a, a, a guy who's in it for the power game like this, not committed to ideology... There's less things that you can get him on. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There's less things to for you to convince the people to fight against him for if he's gonna just do the right thing. Yes. And that and the right thing is a hard word to say because is it the right thing to have a surveillance state and have a social credit system? I don't think so. That's the thing. It doesn't it doesn't matter if we think it's the right thing because his people think it's the right thing. And he establishes that through continuing to have this surveillance state to control the media and the internet, to control the education system, to constantly push this propaganda of the power of the Chinese state and the enemy, the envious West that wants to hold China down to prevent its rise, even though China's doing nothing to infringe upon the freedoms of the West. And that's what I think is so interesting now is China really is becoming a very nationalist state. Oh, yeah. And that, I mean, that's kind of new. That's a kind of a new thing. I mean, Marxism is distinctly opposed to nationalism. To be a Marxist is to be an internationalist, to be an Mm anti-nationalist, to be a Marxist. And so now this this Marxist-Leninist state is a completely completely nationalist han chinese state that is deeply infringing on the rights of racial minorities the Uyghurs, and all the other ones that exist in tibet and it's it's they're doing this sinification which is actually very long-standing in chinese history Mm -hmm. believe it or not this isn't the first time that the han chinese have wrapped up a bunch of turks and killed them all this happened in the 1700s this happened this has always happened this is a revert back to ancient chinese policy this Mm -hmm. is and that's what I think is so interesting when people call and talk about Chinese communism. This is really Chinese pragmatism. And I'm going to make that point over and over again whenever we talk about China. Good. Please do. I, what's so interesting is when we bring up the the mistreatment of ethnic and racial minorities is this something I've mentioned, I think, on a prior episode, is you would hope that the U.S. or Western allies would then edit trade policy based on human rights abuses and in fact this author brings up that through the 90s every single year congress introduced legislation to 
try to base trade relationships with China on improving human rights um, abuse, like getting rid of the human rights abuses. Yeah. And they never passed. And it just goes to show that like we can we can posture about the moral high ground of the United States, but it's obviously it's not there. We'll, well, we'll how, do anything well, to it's hard. support our own interests. It's hard for the United States to be on this moral high ground when our honestly, this is the truth. Okay, it's hard for the the United States to be on this moral high ground when we are born through the genocide of Native American people. When half of our country was deeply embedded into the institution of slavery for uh, the country's foundation. It's hard for America to do that and be this international policeman fighting for the freedom and liberties of the people abroad and for China not to point at us and say, you did it. Exactly. They call us the imperialist Americans yeah. in their education system, which is not wrong. It's not wrong. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing. It's like, it's not, that is not incorrect. But does that mean like, what they're doing to the Uyghurs now is okay? Absolutely not. The United States isn't doing anything equivalent to what they're doing to the Uyghurs exactly. now. Exactly. But go back 100 years ago, sure. Yeah. But that was 100 years ago. But th this is why the conversations are difficult on an international level mm -hmm. where the United States doesn't – people don't think the U.S. has a leg to stand on yes. because of our history. Exactly. Well, and this reminds me of like the, the communication that now happens about climate change mm, and how absolutely. we'll point the finger at China for being the world's largest – greenhouse gas emitter but really it's it's like that was us 50 years ago and all that's really happened is that china has always just been lagging about 50 years behind us yeah so it makes sense and and also i mean this is another thing when you do emissions per capita the united states emits more than china when you do per person in the country yeah so i i think that i i just what what um worries me is that Xi is coming up to the breaking point here and the time to like, they are going to be finished biding their time. Yeah. And I, they're about to explode. So yes, yes, I totally see that. I, I want to talk about a few, like a little bit more of this rise. And I think we've, we've covered most of it, mm -hmm. but there's a really important point that our author talks about in 2008. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is where, so two things happen. The U S looks to be on a distinct downwards trend because we are so we are the cause of the global financial crisis which does not affect china which does not affect china and they're boastful about how it doesn't affect china meanwhile china hosts the olympics right and they look great and they use this to propagandize the state of china they also use it as an opportunity to implement its hardcore surveillance state. And they say that it's just for the Olympics, but looking back, that is clearly not true. It was a beta test. Exactly. And which is now spread throughout the entire country. So they become boastful. They start to treat the U.S. with less politeness. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really started what you were kind of describing as a more aggressive, domineering and arrogant tendency arrogant. for China to project. It's projecting this idea that China will be dominance. It's projecting Chinese strength. I think a big moment for that is in 2021 when Anthony Blinken meets with a Chinese representative in Alaska and they have it out. And then the Chinese counterbalance to Anthony Blinken really looks like an equivalent. No longer is there a, a, even the feeling of an inferiority on the Chinese side. It is a equivalent slash 
a younger brother who just started lifting weights. Yeah. That's how it that's how the meaning turns out. Mm. And there's a massive shift in in how China sees itself and what it needs to accomplish. But what the, the main thing that I want to with with China wait, do you have any more on the rise? No. Okay. So the main thing I want to talk about with China's explosion is they're forced to explode within the next five to 10 years. Yes. They don't have a choice because China messed up with their one China policy. One child. One child policy. And they don't have the population to do this at any other time. China will have a population of around 750 million by 2100. Yeah. And- that's that's about half of what it has now. The country is going to have half of its current population. And it, it doesn't have a good immigration system. So people aren't going to China. Mm-hmm. It's going to lose half of its population. This is the last time it's going to have military-aged men, enough of them, to fight a war with the West, mm-hmm. to fight a war to take Taiwan. This is the last time that they're going to be able to do this for 150 years. And to avoid another age of humiliation, China... I think will do anything and they will not go back into being second place. They will not do. And if they do do it, they will not do it quietly. So this is where we get into this idea of a Thucydides trap. Yes. And this is so scary. What's this is scary because this is also the exact, the exact rationale for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The exact same one, the exact same thing. Cause Russia has also been facing demographic collapse there's but but in in China I think it's more apt to use the Thucydides trap which I'm going to I'm going to quote this article to describe yeah. it. So about the Peloponnesian War that devastated ancient Greece the the historian Thucydides explained it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. Over the past 500 years these conditions have occurred 16 times. And what these conditions mean is a rising power that strikes fear in the heart of the already dominant power that they're going to be taken over, leading to war. Mm -hmm. It also inspires these feelings that we've already talked about, where China projects that the U.S. is envious of its rise and needs to hold it down. And the U.S. sees China as being aggressive towards it because they're like, China wants our spot. Right. It's what it's what we're seeing. It it is happening. It is happening. War broke out in twelve of these sixteen occasions. Today, as an unstoppable China approaches an immovable America, and both Xi Jinping and Donald Trump promise to make their countries great again, the seventeenth case looks grim. Unless China is willing to scale back its ambitions, or Washington can accept becoming number two in the Pacific. A trade conflict, cyber attack, or accident at sea could soon escalate into all-out war. Yeah. And we've talked about this. It seems so possible for this to happen over Taiwan. Yeah. And the United States is starting to send military aid to Taiwan for one of the first times. We're starting to send guns. We're not sending soft weapons anymore. Mm. We're not sending soft support. We're sending hard support. We're giving artillery shells. We're giving weapons. Yeah. This is the first time we're doing that in Taiwan. 
we've also signed agreements recently with the Philippines to yep. establish more military bases. And we do have a strong presence in the Pacific. Japan is one of our closest allies. Japan, Korea, Australia, Philippines, Australia now. Yes. You know, we're going to have our ties with India are not going to be like military codependence and military alliance, but India will be a counterweight to China going forward. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's. It's just, it's frightening because also Biden has specifically said they will militarily defend Taiwan if China attacks it. And he's ended up rolling those back, but he's taken longer and longer to roll those back. He's let those comments linger for longer and longer. And that's where it seems like this Thucydides trap is exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. They're letting the tensions escalate and escalate because it seems like they have to keep dissuading the other side from getting more aggressive and the only way to do that they think is to get more aggressive themselves right weirdly enough though at the g7 recently biden made some comments about how the relationship with china couldn't be decoupling going forward it could only be de-risk this is something that both of these leaders are aware of Mm -hmm. and they want they know how disastrous war would be the bottom line is that it comes to Taiwan. And if she decides that he's going to invade Taiwan, he's going to be making a bet that the U.S. has been bluffing that they're actually going to go in and defend it. I don't know about the logistics of actually defending Taiwan. I don't know if it's even possible. Me neither. And I and I think one thing we talked about before we wanted to do this deep dive, because there's so much to talk about with the U.S. and China, is we want to do a series. I think our next series should be about like a military thing about South Taiwan. South China or, Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I think, think we should do that next. We could probably just finish the episode here. I think it's a good spot. You can tune in next week for a deep dive on the South China Sea. Everything that happens there. What are the military positions? We'll get into it. It's going to be fantastic. Wonderful. Talk to you later, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.